This is a Federal News Network podcast. The idea for a space national guard has gone back and forth since even before the conception of the Space Force itself. Well, now, once again, the National Guard is advocating for a new component to handle capabilities outside of the Earth's atmosphere. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni joins me with the latest. And, Scott, why does the National Guard think there's a need for a space National Guard? Well, since the creation of the Space Force, the Air Force itself has really given up its space capabilities. They're no longer under the Air Force service itself, even though it still falls under the Department of the Air Force, and therefore not as much under the Air National Guard, which is where the National Guard space units are. So right now they have a disconnect between policy, training, equipping, and all those sorts of things that a service is in charge of because they're relying on the Air Force rather than the Space Force, which is doing this sort of mission. Now, this is also a big recruiting tool for the Space Force because they can bring in space experts part-time from places like SpaceX, from Blue Origin, or wherever else that they want to bring in people from. So this is really a way that the Space Force can bring people into their ranks that they think could be experts and really help out the service that they're building. Right. So I guess maybe there's some confusion as to whether this is really a reserve force or a National Guard force. And there's a distinction there to be made, correct? There certainly is. And the Space Force itself has kind of made this a little hazy in their recommendation. What they've been asking for is a hybrid service, which would be just one component that holds both the reserve and the guard service together. And that would basically serve as a space national guard. And that's what they've brought forth to Congress. Congress has not at this point taken that advice, but it has been thrown out there as a possibility. And it's kind of hard to picture because, you know, the Army National Guard and the other National Guard do duty on U.S. soil when required by governors, when there's an emergency, some sort of a natural disaster or even a horrible crime situation or a riot that takes a little bit more than local authorities can handle. It's temporary, and they go back. And there's that weekly training session that they have each year, a couple of weeks away for training. But what could happen in space? What would call for a space National Guard to be called out by a governor? The DISH satellites aren't working or something? Right. And that's what a lot of critics have brought up as well, is what are states doing with space? And there are only seven states at this point that have space units, and there are 14 units within that. And many of them have a national component to what they do. However, many governors have used this space capability to do something like using satellite images to track wildfires or even to watch over some sort of criminal activity. So this is something that states may be using further on in the future as these capabilities become something that's more understandable, cheap and easier to use for people compared to the much higher capability that they needed in the past. And do we know how much space capabilities the National Guard handles now? You mentioned imagery. It's quite a bit. There's a thousand service members in space units at this point. And as far as the national mission, 60 percent of offensive space electromagnetic warfare capabilities is handled by the Air National Guard, 50 percent of command and control for the National Command Authority, and 30 percent of the nation's strategic missile warning system are under these part-time airmen. So it's not a small amount that they're doing. However, as we were talking about, those are not state-mandated type things. Those are national-mandated type things. We're speaking with Federal News Network Scott Massioni. So the question again comes, some people think there should be a Space National Guard. Anybody know how much it might cost to establish that and run it? Well, at this point, the National Guard is saying that it'll only cost about a quarter of a million dollars to set up a National Guard the way it is now. So that would just include the seven states, the 14 different units, 
And what they're really saying is this would just be something for uniforms, basically some small doctrine type stuff. It wouldn't take a lot. Now, that's no guarantee that that won't grow at any point. So the next year, Montana may say, well, we'd like a Space National Guard, and that can completely throw a wrench into things. So at this point, it may seem like it won't be a lot of money, but that could grow further in the future. I haven't seen too many government-started gambits shrink over the years. Right. Maybe cash for clunkers went away, but otherwise they seem to acquire a life of their own. And what is the opinion of the Space Force itself, and what about the White House? Well, we mentioned that the Space Force had this idea for a hybrid National Guard, so that would be something that brings in the Reserve component and the National Guard, maybe a way of making things a little cheaper and also bringing in that national component that we were talking about. The House NDAA at this point, this is from the Congress perspective, would create a Space National Guard for 2023 to form only in the seven states that's created at this point. So basically what the National Guard has been requesting. However, OMB is a little cautious about this. They warned in their directives about the NDAA, their sort of opinions on things, that it would cost a $500 million price tag, basically. But the National Guard says is that this would be an assumption that all 50 states create their own National Guard. So that's a lot of seed money that they would create in there. So there's an important differentiation here between what Congress is talking about, and what the OMB sort of wrote their opinion about. Yeah, $250,000 versus a half a billion. That's kind of a big range. Yeah, that's quite a big range. And if this is established, the Space National Guard, where would it be headquartered? Well, you know, at this point, we're not really sure where it would be headquartered, if it would really be headquartered anywhere. You know, they've talked about bringing Space Command to Huntsville, Alabama, that's sort of in some wishy-washy area at this point. But each state would have their own National Guard. But, you know, what I'm seeing in this, there would probably be two likely scenarios. One is that these things would stay in their current states if they decide to create one with the quarter of a million dollars. There would only be the seven states that have it. There wouldn't be any growth. And we would see it just kind of do its thing and possibly grow, as you talked about. The other scenario would be that the States all want to jump in. They see what they can possibly do with these Space National Guards or the future capabilities of this. And the growth, as you were talking about, starts to build. And we go from a quarter of a million dollars up to that 500 million or possibly more as governors start to say, well, I want to be able to image wildfires in my state as well. So it's a very likely possibility that this is something that could grow much larger and really be a burden on taxpayers. And does the NDAA draft for 2023 say anything about a Space National Guard? The NDAA draft at this point was a amendment by Representative Crow forms the National Guard only in those seven states specifically. And, you know, these are states that actually really have a space component to them. Colorado, Hawaii, Florida, Texas, these are places that have space capabilities already. Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made 
quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, 
You know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.